So he's he's operating in all of these different conservative and and radical traditions at the same time, and he takes all of them very seriously. So it's not the case that you can just say, okay, Keynes was a socialist, Keynes was a lefty, or Keynes was a conservative. He's doing all of these things at once, and he does not fit into the categories, I think, that we we typically think about when we talk about left and right today, you know, he would probably have been horrified by Bernie Sanders rhetoric in the, in the 2020 campaign talking about a revolution, but he probably would have loved Bernie Sanders uh, policy program. Welcome back to left anchor. I'm Alexi, the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper. Pleased to have on the podcast. um, Mr. Zach Carter, who is a, a reporter at the Huffington Post still, if I'm not mistaken, and has just written a book, uh, a sort of, I guess you'd call it an intellectual biography of John Maynard Keynes. And um, that came out just a couple days ago. And um, I've read it. Uh, I, got a, I got a galley copy because I'm part of the you know journalism industrial complex. And, and, I, I, and I got one too, just piggybacking off of Ryan, so... Yeah, and I can say, you know, we'll, we'll we'll get into it in a bit, but I can say it's it's really excellent stuff. Um, you know, I'm currently writing a book. It's due in 2 months and it's not going to be as good as this book because <laughs> I'm not going to be able to put near as much work into it. Um, you know, Zach was deep in the archives and it shows, but uh, you know, the the argument of the book is very interesting and um, you know, if you're at all interested in like uh, you know, not just economics, but like intellectual history and a sort of Gramscian ideology. I really recommend it. So um, pick that up uh, like immediately. <laughs> and also, let, let me also add that um, besides being 600 pages, it is thoroughly 600 enjoyable pages. I was drawn in immediately. Um, I don't know, Zach, if you if you pondered going into fiction writing, but it was certainly a, a gripping, gripping narrative along with, uh, you know, wrestling with ideas and history. Well, I mean, thank you, guys. That's obviously very high praise. I, I do feel like it, it in the name of uh, of disclosure here and transparency, we should say that uh, many of the ideas in the book were actually worked out in uh, Rock Creek Park on hiking sessions between myself and Ryan uh, years ago <laughs> uh, before I moved to New York. And before nice. Ryan moved to Philadelphia, so 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 Ryan's talking his own book a little bit here. Excellent. That's true. That's true. You know, I'm I'm basically a ghostwriter, is what you're saying here. <laughs> um, so, so long as we don't have to send you royalty checks, sure. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. But to to get into it, um, let's see. You know, maybe you could start with uh, just a, you know, kind of the the early Keynes and and how you know what sort of social milieu he came out of and what he was up to in his early life because you know in addition to being an economist like he was also just like a cool guy who did lots of very very off the wall things that you wouldn't think of economists today as normally getting involved in right he's not the kind of person who you associate with uh, with sort of the, the norms of american business schools in the 21st century right <laughs> uh, and and i think I think part of that is because his legacy has been written by the economics profession. And uh, 
it, it was not always obvious that John Maynard Keynes was going to be an economist. Uh, for most of his life, he was a philosopher. Uh, he, he sort of came of age in Cambridge before they really had a serious economics program going. And he became somebody who studied economics because he, be, he became involved with the British government in, in World War I. And then he was, he was sort of running British war finance, essentially, almost, almost by accident, frankly. Like he, he just sort of did very well in a financial crisis in, in a moment of, of, of sort of a trial by fire. And, uh, and he performed so well, they, they brought him in and, and had him run British war finance. Uh, that was not necessarily going to be his path. He, he thought of himself as a philosopher. He hung out with people like Bertrand Russell, with Ludwig Wittgenstein. Uh, one of his best friends was Virginia Woolf. Uh, E.M. Forster, who is a uh, you know, very great British novelist, who you know, all of the Merchant Ivory sort of sweepy uh, costume dramas from the 80s and 90s. Like he would, he would give Keynes his his drafts before he he submitted them to to publication. So these were people who were all about art and letters and big ideas, and and Keynes was always sort of the runt of the litter. He just wasn't as good at art as they were, and uh, and they were always sort of like, ah, geez, Maynard, what are you doing? Why why do you not have your uh, your 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 great novel yet? And and he would turn to them and say, well, you know, none of you have your great novel yet either, because up until World War One, no one had ever heard of Virginia Woolf or E.M. Forster. These were not famous people. They were not uh, they were not literary celebrities the way they are today. Uh, and then, then, of course, the war happens, and he becomes one of the most one of the most important people in the British government, and therefore one of the most uh, important people in the world. Yeah, and he was also, you know, uh, what you might call like a a swinger. I don't know if that's exactly the Ryan right. wanted Ryan Ryan wanted to get to the group sex immediately. He wanted to get to that, and so I think we just we better get it over with. You better dive in. <laughs> so, so the truth is, I lose track of the uh, of the different sexual connections between members of the Bloomsbury set. But the fact is, these people uh, slept with each other, slept with each other's uh, significant others. Uh, Keynes kept a, 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 a this there's this crazy note card that exists in the in the Cambridge um, uh, archives, which there's there's like four columns of statistics, and you look at them and you it's like what on earth are these numbers about? And then you turn the card over and it's got all these crazy things like like the clergyman at the baths, the young man under the bridge, and you realize, my goodness, this is Keynes. Book. Right, it's it's the great it's the great economist statistically analyzing every sexual encounter he had between like 1903 and 1916, and and I don't know how to decode it. I did not figure out how each of those columns are supposed to add up or, or whatever. But it's very clear uh, this guy was a very uh, sexually prolific fellow. Uh, he was enthusiastically gay for uh, most of his life, but in his late 30s, he met uh, the most famous. Uh, ballerina in in England, who was a, a Russian from St. Petersburg named Lydia Lapakova. And ballet at this time was sort of like a combination between like football and the movies. It was, it was, you know, this is, this is pre-television. This is just the most, like the most famous, popular, like biggest cultural thing that's happening in Europe at the time. So to marry a ballerina in 1925 is like, it's sort of like, marrying Tom Brady and George Clooney at the same time. 
and and <laughs> which and, Keynes would have loved, I'm sure, actually. <laughs> yeah, probably. But but he but he marries he marries the you know the the female uh, uh, sort of equivalent of this, which is very shocking in Bloomsbury because they've all known he's been gay for so long. They're like, what are you doing marrying a woman? This is this is stunning. But in the rest of the world, uh, where it, in his professional life, his his sexuality was was kept a very close secret, so people in in Treasury at uh, in the British government didn't know about this. They were like, what are you doing marrying a dancer? This is ludicrous. Uh, but he he saw uh, Lydia and and her dancing as as part of this international cultural milieu that was that was just like Bloomsbury, where where there were these people who were working together to create art and ideas that were going to break down all of the terrible political boundaries between people that had been dividing Europe for you know for centuries, and uh, and so that that relationship really really changed his life. But uh, up until then. Everybody in Bloomsbury was basically sleeping with everybody else, and it's and it's it's chaos. It's just total chaos. <laughs> they, no, and I, they. I, when, <laughs> it was intriguing, Zach, because I, I drew a parallel between not just the sexual fluidity, but the idealism and, and perhaps naivete. Although it seemed like quite a little successful commune, despite the drama and and the conflict and so forth. But it, it seemed to me to make sense that his. Um, temperament and personality and fluidity and agility, maybe physically and otherwise, was also, you know, carried over to the way he thought about solving problems in philosophy and economics. I think the standards of the Bloomsbury set were uh, impossibly high. So the idea, the idea was, you know, so long as everybody's open with each other about their feelings, any any romantic attachment is is fine. And and look, that's a great idea in the abstract. But in fact, when like you're sleeping with your best friend's boyfriend slash wife, like this is a this is a disaster. People actually get get into trouble. And I think that that does affect his economic policy making. He has this very idealistic uh, way of approaching policy that says, look, if we could just if we could just all see that this is the right way to do things, it would work out. And and often, of course, people just people just don't work that way. I should say. His idealism is different from the idealism of the economics profession as we typically understand it. You know, he he often is is too naive about international relations and about and about about politics and things like that. But he doesn't have these these very naive assumptions about human rationality and behavior that the economics profession has. Yeah. Um. So, <clears throat> well, is it fair? To f- maybe moving on to his sort of like career as an economist slash like public intellectual, is it fair to say like his, his like entry onto the world stage as a like super famous and popular person was with his critique of the Versailles treaty. Would you think that's fair to say? I think so. Yes. So, so can you run us through, run us through that, um, development from you know from him being like he was an insider during the war and then afterwards became like an almost alex perrine-esque dissident just savagely criticizing these you know people he had just been working with for completely screwing up the the treaty and and doing you know no small amount of political damage to you know the 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 ruling class in in britain and the united states and france at the same time yeah, I think that's an apt comparison. You know, during the war, uh, he's technically opposed to the war. He he is he actually files as a conscientious objector. 
to say that he is he is morally opposed and if he's called on to fight he won't do it because he doesn't believe in it and it's 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 not important because he won't be called on to fight because he's the most important person in the British treasury uh so they're not going to send him to to the front but he nevertheless goes through the motions of filing this stuff because he he genuinely believes this stuff and he is conflicted over the course of the war that you know here he is you know at the height of his professional prowess really being rewarded for this thing that he doesn't really believe in that he thinks is morally wrong. Uh, but by the end of the war, he thinks they have a real chance to sort of make something good out of the war, that that all of all of this bloodshed and nonsense could could come into uh, a way of reshaping the world such that you're not having these competing empires just vying for territory and resources. You could have a set of cooperative democracies working together to ensure mutual prosperity. And, and of course, that is that is not what happens at the Treaty of Versailles in those negotiations at Paris in, in 1919. Um, and in particular, he has he he just thinks that the debts that that everyone has accrued over the course of the war are unsustainable, and they're going to set peoples against each other. So both the reparations duties against uh, Germany that are assigned by the treaty, and also the war debts that continue to be uh, demanded by the the various powers, whether it's Britain against France or the United States against Britain, these are just unsustainable, and countries will not be able to recover if they have to keep shipping capital overseas to the to their creditors, and. He writes this scathing critique called The Economic Consequences of the Peace, which then becomes this runaway international bestseller. And he doesn't really expect it to do that. I mean, he'd, he'd written a book before on Indian finance. And, you know, when you write a book and you want it to sell, you don't call it The Economic Consequences of the Peace, right? That's not a, that's not, that doesn't click, right? Yeah. Uh, that didn't click in 1919. But it, it was just such an explosive book that it became a runaway bestseller. And it really established him as an intellectual who was willing to challenge his own government, who was willing to say no to the people who were in power in his own country and and really tell on them in front of the in the entire world. It gave him this sort of international reputation for objectivity and fairness, uh, even though it's a very passionate book. I mean, you read that. It's one of the most emotionally affecting pieces of economic literature that's ever been produced. I mean, there, there are just sequences from it that are absolutely, I mean, they will just stop your heart. They're totally arresting. And that book makes him this international celebrity, even as it just makes him totally, completely uh, persona non grata in, in Whitehall. He is no longer welcome in British politics because he's just told on everybody. And who wants to have an economic advisor who, you know, if you screw up, he'll go and write another best-selling book talking about what a terrible person you are. Uh, so he ends up being out of power for, for you know, more than 10 years as, as a result of this book. Uh, and, uh, you know, he, he, had, he had intended to leave Treasury after the war, just working in, in war finance for four years will exhaust you. But, uh, but he had not intended to make himself a total exile from power. And that's what the book did. But at the same time, it made him this sort of outsider who could talk about British politics and international finance in a way that people would take seriously because they didn't see him as a national partisan. Do, do you think that um, besides his genius, it, it was really his moral 
and intellectual courage that explains that? Because he was surely savvy enough to know, I, I think, I mean, you tell me, he was probably savvy enough to know what would happen if he spoke out against against the powers that be. Um, but again, he had already proved that he was willing to to kind of even uh, offend his, his best friends and lovers by going into kind of, uh, you know, working for the man, as it were. Uh, it, it seems to me that, that something that's indelible about his character was this just uh, absolute courage and integrity about doing what he thought was right. Do you think that explains part of it? This is a remarkable interview because you guys obviously actually read the book, which frankly, in the oh, book yeah. tour is like a little bit of a, uh, it's, it's unusual. Uh, so I think Keynes on, on that particular book, I, I think he was just doing what he thought was right. I think he was just so angry about the treaty. He just felt like he had to say what he what he meant. I also don't think he expected it to take off the way he did. So he, he didn't think that it was going to have the effect on his reputation that it did. And if you look at other things that he wrote over the course of his career, he's very savvy about talking to particular audiences in particular ways. You know, this is this is before the internet where everybody can look up everything that you've ever said to anyone ever. And when he talks to a conservative publication, he makes it sound like, oh, I, I'm just... I'm very afraid of change and I don't want to change too much stuff. And that's, that's why I want to do all of these things to help working people. And when he talks to a radical publication, he says, well, you know, you really have to do something about these dangerous capitalists. They're, uh, they're, they're ruining, they're ruining the world. And, and he's, he's very savvy about this. So he's not somebody who, uh, you know, doesn't, doesn't know how to play the game, I I should say. But with that book, I, I, I feel like that, that is, that is a, a creed occur. That is, that is, That is Keynes trying to atone for having been part of the British war machine for four years and it having come to naught with uh, just absolute, you know, unimaginable slaughter and bloodshed uh, to the Bloomsbury set. You know, these these people have very deeply felt moral convictions about the British Empire. They think the British Empire is this sort of force for democracy and prosperity around the world, much the way I think uh, American exceptionalists think about the United States today. Um, and and they are just totally just beside themselves to see what's happened in World War One because they say they see this they they, they they see their vision of the empire crumbling in front of them as the empire itself is is coming under pressure. Yeah. Um, well, and that leads to, you know, in, in over that next decade, uh, the, the Great Depression and Keynes developing, you know, his, his sort of signature doctrine, for lack of a better word, of Keynesianism. So can you, can you lead us through, uh, you know, the, the development of Keynesianism in the, in the British context and, um, you know, the, the people who, uh, helped to create it, uh, like Joan Robinson and Piero uh, Schraffa, you know, because it was, uh, you know, as you say, very much a group effort. His his big book, published in 1936, um, The General Theory of Employment, Interest, and Money, if I got those in the right order. Nailed it, yeah. Um, yeah, so can you tell us about how his thinking evolved past where he had been in uh, 1919? Sure. So in 1919, he's he's very much somebody who is on board with the gold standard, the 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 existing kind of status quo in in economics that had prevailed since the 1870s. He just thought that excessive debts were going to prevent the the normal market mechanisms from from working their magic. 
Um, over the course of the next decade, he becomes convinced that market mechanisms don't work magic. Um, that just just given things enough time, they're not going to get there. One of his most famous quotes is from 1923, where he says, in the long run, we are all dead. That is not just a statement of pessimism. Uh, Keynes was a very optimistic person. It's It's a statement that if you keep waiting for things to work out in the long run, for the the economy to sort of right itself, absent government uh, action or, or social coordination, uh, then then you know, okay, it might get there eventually. But in in the medium medium term, you know, the short run, we have to live our lives and we have to do things and and uh, you know to. To, to, to put sort of a moral spin on it, you know, justice deferred is justice denied. And uh, and he, he cares about that very deeply and it, because it becomes very clear in Britain. Things are not getting better. We think about the Great Depression as something that sets in in the United States in 1929 with the stock market crash. But really in Britain, it's on from the end of the war. So they call it the slump for a long time because they're, they're just in this terrible double-digit unemployment situation. But it lasts all the way through until World War II for Britain. So this is a disaster. And and you would think that at some point, no matter how badly the government had screwed up the mismanagement of the economy, if there were market forces that were going to right the ship, eventually they would sort of figure it out. Eventually the equations would balance and you would get to some sort of equilibrium where you were back to full employment. And that just kept not happening. And so Keynes was convinced that there was something wrong and he kept taking sort of smaller and smaller steps away from the market orthodoxy that had prevailed in in the, the era of the, the high gold standard. First he says, well maybe maybe we're mismanaging money in some way. Maybe the money supply isn't, you know, is 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 too high or too low and we need to we need to be able to to manage the amount of money using the central bank, uh, much the way that Milton Friedman would, would later talk about in the 1970s. But when that doesn't work, he says, okay, well, let's try some other things. And the people who he comes to work with, uh, in many ways, are much more radical uh, than than he has been up to this point in his life. So Joan Robinson, who is, you know, almost a Marxist, you know, she's somebody who clearly is very sympathetic to Marx, Marxist uh, social philosophy, but her economics are really the economics of, of Keynes. Um, she basically co-writes the general theory with with Keynes. Uh, and, and there are serious disputes within this sort of collective that is uh, around Keynes at Cambridge in the 1930s about what the meaning of this book is. Keynes sort of sees it as a, you know, this, this is our best guess in 1936. This is what we can do. Like we, we need to, we need to find some sort of intellectual justification for public works projects. You know, we, we need to practically allow governments to do things and we need to convince the economics profession to sort of take their boot off the necks of the policymakers so they can actually do the stuff that, that will work. Robinson sees it much more as a sort of like, like biblical text, as a sort of foundational document, like a constitution about how you should, how you should think about economics going forward. And in a weird way, that's that, that, that Robinsonian sort of foundationalist understanding is is what enables the general theory to live on, even though the people who interpret it don't share Robinson's social philosophy. It ends up being interpreted by much more conservative people. And so what we think of as Keynesianism today is not at all what either Robinson or Keynes had in mind in 1936. Yeah. But so, so can you, uh, like, just in in that moment in 36 you know like if 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 Keynes and Robinson were sort of handing a uh, you know a tip sheet or something you know like some guidelines 
to uh, policymakers. I, I believe uh, Keynes actually met with with uh, Franklin Roosevelt at one point, and uh, was was not very impressive, apparently. Um, and uh, but, but FDR, FDR says that he thought he was a mathematician rather than a political economist. That was great. Yeah, give him a whole rigmarole of figures. <laughs> rigmarole, great word. <laughs> Yeah, Ro- Roosevelt was not a, a he was more of an intuitive guy. He was not a rigorous intellectual type of type of person. But w- if they were advising someone, you know, what w- what would their sort of um you know, set of set of principles like what's their picture of how the economy works according to, you know, the general theory at that point? Keynes was concerned with you could look around and see that there were there were crops rotting in the fields. There were people who wanted to work who were not being put to work. We did not have a problem in which there was a shortage of real resources. There was stuff to be there was stuff being produced. There were people who wanted to work, and yet somehow the economy was not producing the stuff that created prosperity. And so he figured there was something internally in the workings of the monetary system that was transmitting bad ideas to people. The price system wasn't telling people to produce the right things at the right times. And he decided that this was a result of a a much deeper philosophical sort of uh, view that he'd been working on for a long time about the nature of rationality. Uh, So it's a very philosophical book. It's not just about money and numbers. There aren't a whole lot of equations in the general theory. But essentially... If you look to the future and you, you want to make a rational choice in the present and you don't know what the future is because the future is just uncertain, how can you say that anything that you do in this moment is rational or not? Economics just assumes that people are rational actors who, who maximize their own sort of profitability and their, their own prospects. Kane says, well, okay, maybe they do do that, but, but how can you know in an uncertain future? And particularly when things get very bad and it's very difficult to predict what the future is going to be like, how might you behave? And he says, you know, people might just hoard a lot of money. They might not spend it. And if they don't spend their money, then there's no economic activity. And if they don't spend their, their, their money, there's nothing in the economic fundamentals of reality that's going to someday force them to go out and spend it. If you're still worried about the future, you still just might not spend it. Investors might not invest it. And the point is that if things get bad enough, it becomes a self sort of a self fulfilling prophecy. That makes intuitive sense to normal people, but economists have a model that says that's not possible, right? So a lot of the general theory is just trying to convince economists that people are the way that they are, and that the textbooks are not actually correct. And it 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 actually he he wrote some some very straightforward papers after the general theory. They're much easier to interpret than the book itself. But the book itself is almost indecipherable because he's trying to communicate with these economists who have these very, you know, highfalutin ways of talking and these these established sort of uh, conventions of, of language that are nonsensical, essentially. Um, once you understand that basic point, it, it makes sense, I think, to, to most people. You don't have to be, you know, a PhD person to realize that Okay, if uh, if people don't spend money, then the economy is not happening. So he says, look, if people aren't doing it, the government should do it, and it almost doesn't matter what the government spends it on. You know, you could spend it burying, uh, you could you could pay people to dig holes and bury bottles filled with banknotes, and then pay another set of people to come in and dig the bottles up and pull the banknotes out. That would still that would get people to work, and that sounds absurd, 
But it's only absurd if if real resources are the constraint on your economy. If if you actually have enough stuff to go around, if we're not going hungry, if we're not starving, we don't need to have everybody farming beans and potatoes to make sure that we can you know receive enough nutrients to exist, then the rest of the economy is sort of this monetary trick that we play on ourselves to keep the machine going so that we can have access to the things that give us the tokens to pay for the beans and potatoes that are being produced. So he he is uh, thinking about the economy as a system, and that is that is something he inherits from being a British imperial manager in the war. So it, it very much is is a result of his his work running the British, fine, looking at the whole economy uh, from the perspective, perspective of, of an imperial manager that, you know, there's there's good and bad with that. Uh, but it, it becomes very clear in 1936 that this is just the way the world is. And Franklin Roosevelt has already been deploying some of these these policies, but he needs intellectual legitimacy for it because people are like, oh my goodness, this is just a violation of basic economic principles. And then here comes John Maynard Keynes and says, no, I'm the most pre- prestigious economist in the world. I have I have all of this objectivity from my great work that criticized my own government. And here's, here's how the economy works. And people say, okay, well, we'll just do this. <laughs> and Zach, at that point, had Keynes done his study of of money and the history of money over thousands of years because one thing that that struck me was uh, the clear di- divergence that he has from the classical economists in saying that markets were social, not mathematical phenomena, and that the history of money shows that um, markets aren't natural and and what's what's always been the case is that the state was always involved with money and that the legitimacy of the state was what gave money its, its uh, power and legitimacy. So was that something he'd already done at this point as well? Yes. So starting in the early 1920s, he's, he's reading a lot of work on uh, ancient Babylonian currencies, ancient Greek currencies, trying to get a handle on where economics comes from, what economics is, what, what the economy is. And he comes to believe that money is a tool of statecraft. Uh, which is, you know, it's a very uh, top-down kind of understanding of the economy. He says, look, there's there's no money without a power to enforce that this is the thing that is called money. So it doesn't matter to him so much whether, you know, gold or pieces of metal are stamped with, like, per, you know, people's faces, so long as there is a power to say, this is what we will exchange for goods and services. Uh, that That is the thing that, that makes money. And it's it's a political entity. It's a tool of statecraft, the same way that you know gunboats are a tool of statecraft, the same way that uh, that you know building roads is a tool of statecraft. Um, so he sees the economy as something that's intimately bound up with politics, that is inseparable from from politics. If you have a monetary economy, you have a political system. You cannot talk about free markets independent of the state. Because that, that, that's just nonsense. The market is something that is created by the state and the, the basic instruments of exchange, the basic tools of exchange are, are created and maintained by the state. And this is, this is you know, something he's very excited about when he, when he discovers it. I mean, he calls it his Babylonian madness. And he writes these <laughs> crazy letters to Lydia when she's off d- dancing in Paris. He's like, oh, my goodness, I have not been able to sleep all night. I've just been awake again with the Babylonian madness and writing. And you can, you can go through his papers. That he, he writes these long, long, like 50, 60-page drafts about currency that he never really does anything with. And they're just scrapped. It's like, okay, there it is. There, there's, some of it makes its way into uh, the Treatise on Money, which is his first really big book about economics in 1930. But ultimately, he was thinking very seriously about doing, uh, 
doing like an ancient history of like money kind of thing as as a major historical work. It, he just never got around to it. Yeah. So <clears throat> we have a, you know, like it, it. It seems like he's saying in most important respects that the economy is a government program. You know, like like the the economy comes from from state rules, from from state power. Uh, and and from the decisions that that the policymakers uh, choose to make uh, as as things happen, but um, you know one interesting thing about your book is you know it's kind of a bi- biography of Keynes, and one reason I call it an intellectual biography is about two thirds of the way through Keynes dies. <laughs> and you gave it away, man. Spoiler, spoiler, <laughs> sorry, spoiler alert. Sorry, um, but so he. Uh, he has a, a you know a number of disciples you know in the UK and then in the US um but mm-hmm. you talk about uh, you can you talk a bit about how Keynes sort of got bastardized in the American context um and how American Keynesianism as it came to be you know understood in economics at least uh was kind of divested of like like most of its sort of fundamental political insights yeah, so so that word bastard Keynesianism is is a, a description that Joan Robinson uses to talk about American Keynesians, uh, starting in I think the late 1950s, maybe early 1960s, where she she says that they've just stripped him away of, of you know everything that's intellectually interesting about Keynesianism, and and sort of what happens is there, there's a set of of economists led by Paul Samuelson, um, who who writes the best selling textbook on economics ever. Uh, and Paul Samuelson's version of Keynesianism becomes the version that everybody inherits and that everybody understands. This is the common sense thing that when when you get into a recession, you got to spend money to get out of the doldrums. The thing you learn in Econ 101 that like you read in Paul Krugman columns, this is Paul Samuelson's deal. And Paul Samuelson basically says, you don't have to break with the the sort of intellectual philosophical foundations of economics in order to get to that Keynesian policy. All you have to believe is that if if we're not at full employment, then economics goes into the, he calls it a topsy-turvy place, where, where up is down and left is right. But so long as things are at full employment, then the general rules of economics, you know, of, of rational actors pursuing their their self-interest and equations balancing and all this that will all work out things will things will will settle into a prosperous equilibrium so long as you maintain full employment by having the government stimulate aggregate demand when you get into a recession so something just happens external shock uh, makes the economy kind of dip out of its natural tendency towards stability you got to spend some money then the economy will work out again Um that's that's the sort of Samuelsonian perspective on on Keynes. That's the one that comes to dominate uh, American intellectual discourse. Joan Robinson is just outraged by this. She thinks it's horrendous, and and she says, you know, look, Keynes and math. You know, he didn't even really like math. He didn't like the idea of e- general equilibrium in uh, in economics. And and she's right most of the time. I think I think if you look at the the the, the general body of his thought and the focus on uncertainty. 
uh, she has a better interpretation. But it's also true that Keynes changed his mind all the time. And he's a complex thinker. He was not consistent. And he did also talk about, uh, you know, economics being able to bring in a, an age of joy through statistics, uh, which you could only do if you could predict people's activities and, and, and be able to manage them through, uh, you know, wise technocratic, uh, uh, you know, tweaking of levers and, and gauges. So, uh, you know, it's, it's not that the economics profession is completely out of left field with their interpretation of Keynes. But it is a very narrow interpretation that excludes absolutely everything else that he cared about in the rest of his life uh, in order to come to this, this, this conclusion. And I think those values, you know, the things that he cared about, like he wanted everybody to live in Bloomsbury. He thought like, how cool is it that I get to hang out with Virginia Woolf every day and I get to drink champagne while these post-impressionist <laughs> you know, painters give me haircuts? Like, doesn't everybody want to live like that? Right. That was his ideal. And he wanted, you know, toward the end of his life in the 1940s, he gives this amazing radio address where he says, uh, you know, this is before television. So he's, he's saying Britain's totally broke. It's the end of World War II. And he's saying we need to build community theaters in every single neighborhood of every city and, and rural county in Britain. And we need to have, we need to pay people to be playwrights and actors so that, you know, he says, let every, every merry part of England be merry in its own way. Uh, he also says death to Hollywood. He's, he's like, none, none of this, none of this top down cultural hegemony, like let everybody just do art together. And that is not, I think, a worldview that is expressed by the economics pre- profession today. Uh, I, I don't think that's Wait, part no. of what you don't get that in Econ 101, you know, and it's really central to the way he thinks about the world. No, it's so interesting because uh, a number of things are interesting, but his goal and that's that kind of parallel you drew to the young Karl Marx and the German ideology, that kind of democratic socialist vision, um, you can see it in. What, you know, when he wrote 1930 Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren. Uh, and, and he had both the savvy and technical know-how to project 100 years into the future pretty accurately in terms of like capital accumulation and technological development and so forth. Um, but the idealism that was part of his vision for how life should be and how we should have the kind of leisure that we could have today, given that advance, right? That we, we could have 15-hour work weeks. We could have all of that. It seems like that idealism also blinded him in, in kind of a naive way to, to power and how power operates, uh, perhaps, you know, because uh, we certainly had half of that vision fulfilled, but not the other half. So I, I wonder what you think about, you know, that piece that he wrote and just generally uh, maybe how his view of human nature kind of uh, clouded maybe some of the inabilities that we've seen since his ideas were, you know, flourishing to actually actualize his vision. Well, certainly that's Joan Robinson's perspective on Keynes. So, so this this piece that he writes, uh, it's published in 1930, but he's he's been at work on it for uh, several years. It's called Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren, and he he says, look, in 80 years, uh, the economic problem of humanity will be solved. Scarcity is not the fundamental problem facing humanity going forward. And so as a result, we can work less. And, and as we work less, we will, we will have time to do all of the things that we want to do. And your, your reference to the German ideology, this, this, uh, you know, wonderful essay by Marx, uh, which Keynes had not read. Uh, I, don't, I don't even know if it's, if it's clear that Keynes ever read Marx at all, frankly, but he certainly hadn't read this essay because it hadn't been translated into English yet. So, uh, 
this 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 idea that we could all be scientists and artists and and you know spend a few days hoeing onions or you know forging steel or a few hours you know a week doing those things, but the rest of the time we're 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 being artists and scientists. Uh, you know, he believes in that deeply. That's not this is not just a flight of fancy. He's he's not just uh, you know pontificating here. And if you look at the way the economy has developed, he's right. Over the course of 80 years, if you at least if you measure GDP per capita, uh, we essentially have progressed at that at that same uh, that same rate. But but it's been captured by the rich, and the gains the gains have gone to uh, you know people who are already wealthy, and so the rest of us have to keep working. And I do think I do think he is in many ways naive about the way power works in the general theory. He says, you know, it's ideas that move the world and shape the world, not vested interests. And he's, he's talking directly to Marxists when he says that he says, you know, he, he's the, the idea that we are condemned by the structure of the economy, uh, that there is no agency, that that is wrong, that people's ideas can give, give us the ability to change. Uh, and, you know, I think there there are compelling points on both sides of this. On the one hand, if you really believe that we're 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 totally constricted by the the economic foundations of society, then our agency doesn't matter. Why are we talking about politics at all? It's just sort of like a game. It's like a, a chess match we're doing. It's fun while while we're waiting for the economic structure of society to change and, and make progress for us. Uh, but I I think the idea that you uh, that you persuade people with rational arguments. And make them do the right thing because they all want the same the same thing. That's that's clearly not true, right? I mean, politics just does not work that way, and and it and it has not worked out that way over the course of his uh, you know over the course of the, the the Keynesian history. So in many ways, people have used Keynesian ideas, Republicans in particular in the United States, to pursue goals that Keynes would have found totally abhorrent. I mean, the whole idea of military Keynesianism. Uh, Running up big budget deficits in order to get, keep the economy roaring so you can do more wars. Uh, you know, he was a pacifist. Uh, that was, you know, a, admittedly a complicated pacifist who was in charge of British war finance for two world wars. So it's, he's a complicated your, guy. Your, your book is called The Price of Peace for a Reason, though, because what motivated Keynes, as, as you, you know, detail is um, peace, really, and, and to end wars and, and that. This might be the vehicle to do that, and it, and so of course the, uh, the the German ideology parallel is because there's no war, there's no violence, there's there's abundance, and and so he, you know you draw this uh, interesting irony or, or paradox that uh, Keynesian economics were displayed for their efficacy most uh, during war, actually, and so so that's kind of interesting too. But uh, he he definitely privileged ethics and philosophy as the ends to which economics should be, you know, purposed. Right. Right. The 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 really tragic irony of the whole thing is the way that governments end up spending money to keep the economy moving and, and to achieve full employment in his lifetime is World War II. And World War II is the thing that he's trying to prevent throughout the 20s and 30s. He's saying, oh my God, if you guys don't get your act together on this economic management, these peoples are going to hate each other. They're going to go to war and it's going to be terrible. And then finally they, they go to war and they're like, oh yeah, all your ideas from the 20s and 30s, let's do that to make bombs <laughs> and, and burn people. Like, and, and it works. It works. the The economy is it's just you know unemployment does not exist in World War Two, and uh, and and 
And people, you know, people who are part of the state apparatus see that and they say, okay, well, all right, we have the intellectual justification. We understand this. We know how it's screwed up after World War One. So, so let's keep doing this as part of the, let's, let's, let's sort of take this into the apparatus of the state after, after the war. But they don't take the, the, the moral vision for society that Keynes has. They leave, they leave that aside. And so, you know, whether you spend a dollar on, on bombs or whether you spend a dollar uh, acquiring, uh, you know, French paintings, uh, <laughs> this is one of, the, one of the silliest things that he does in World War I is he goes on this, this random excursion. He talks the British government into letting him go to a sale of Degas' studio. Degas died and his, his art is up for sale. And he's able to convince the British government to let him bid a whole bunch to get a bunch of Degas and bring them back to, uh, to, to Britain. But whether you're spending a dollar on a Degas or a bomb, you know, does, doesn't make that much difference to post-war Keynesians. It's still a dollar of GDP. To Keynes, it makes an awful lot of difference whether you're spending it on art or, or, or bombs. And, uh, and if, you, if you lose sight of the moral and, and political vision that he has, then his tools can be incredibly dangerous. But that's because he's not a, doc, he's not a, he's not a doctrinarian policy wonk guy. He is a philosopher who is trying to get the state to do things to realize a, a particular vision of, of the good life. He is not attached to particular tactics for realizing that good life. Yeah. <clears throat> and on, on this point of, uh, you know, kind of uh, hegemonic ideology and the kind of like contestation and how, you know, bastard Keynesianism came to be, you have a great chapter about um, John Kenneth Galbraith in there, or, or maybe a couple of chapters, um, who, who was... Uh, I think it's fair to say, like the most prominent American exponent of sort of k- broadly Keynesian uh, thinking, not not mm-hmm. nearly as thoroughgoing as someone like Robinson, but a lot more influential and a lot more to the left uh, uh, than Paul Samuelson. Um, you, a- as you as you say, um, there was a fellow who wrote a, a an economics textbook uh, who. Who did? I forget his name, but before Lori Tarshish, yeah, before yeah. Uh, Samuelson wrote a, wrote of of I would say a more accurate Keynesian textbook, but that ran into the Red Scare in the late forties, and there was this huge conservative backlash and attempt to suppress the book on political grounds, saying it's un-American and uh, you know we we can't be indoctrinating our college students with this uh, communist propaganda. And, um, you know, funded by a bunch of wealthy business people who were fanatically against, you know, state action to protect the working class. And, you know, so, you know, this opened the space for, uh, you know, the Samuelson's textbook because everybody canceled their orders, you know, as you say, of the of the of the other one. And so can you tell us a, a little bit about how uh, Galbraith tried to 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 navigate the shoals of the uh you know uh weaponized uh anti-communist paranoia you know as right-wing businessmen attempted to destroy anything you know that would help you know their workers uh with you know this cudgel of of uh, mccarthyism yeah so galbraith comes out of the war convinced that there's no way to uh, there's no way forward for Keynesian thought without getting uh, businessmen on board. Essentially, he he thinks he he sees what happens to uh, 
uh, to Lori Tarshis's textbook where where uh, a just virulent uh, anti-Semite member of the John Birch Society um, named Merwin K. Hart just organizes this very sophisticated attack on the textbook, which has never been done before. I mean, he just he has this letter writing campaign where thousands of people are writing every single trustee of every university that's that's using the Tarsha's textbook and saying this is horrible Marxist communist propaganda. Um, and it's it's it it it's a bit of an ironic attack because it's it's totally nonsense. I mean they're they're accusing him of like you know, pagan, you know, group love, like all sorts of stuff that's just makes no sense at all. But, but it is the case that the broader Keynesian vision um, is threatening to these people. It's if these people really thought Keynes was just talking about deficit spending and recessions, they would not have put forward this kind of, of attack on his, on, on the Tarsus textbook. They thought that this was talking about, Big time government control of the economy. They were talking about socializing sectors of the economy. And if you get to the end of the general theory, Keynes talks about socializing investment. And what does he mean by investment? He means like the the stuff that corporations do when they develop new products. So that's getting pretty close to what I think most people commonsensically uh, think of as, as as socialism. So it's not that there isn't radical potential to, to Keynes. Um, and And... Galbraith reacts to this by saying, oh, oh my goodness, you wild men, you, you think this fellow who just wants to spend money in recessions is, is a radical? That's just so silly. Look, look at Dwight D. Eisenhower. He spends money in a recession. I mean, this is all Keynes is doing. He's a responsible conservative. Uh, but then by the night, the late fifties, he's sort of like, he's like, all right, peeking his head around the corner. Like, can I, can I let him know? Like, is is it okay <laughs> that I tell them that? And he writes this book called The Affluent Society, which is a runaway bestseller, where he basically says, "Look, markets can't solve the big problems of humanity today." He says, "The things that face the, the things that we are dealing with are problems of power and distribution. They're not problems of scarcity. And so, fundamentally, if we rely on the market, we're going to end up with uh, low taxes and dirty parks." We're going to have, you know, all sorts of gadgets and trinkets, and we're going to be unhappy. We're going to be materialistic and uh, and and at war, and we're not going to do any of the things that we actually want to do because markets sort of bend our will in these silly directions. He th- he thinks advertising is particularly a, a toxic influence, um, which in some ways I think is a little silly. But I think when you look at the way advertising bends people through social media, it, it's it's more compelling. Um, but essentially, he says, look. This is a democracy. You know, if we want the world to look a certain way, we can we can just assert democratic will and make it happen. And we're not going to run out of the resources that we need to make that happen. If we become less efficient, that's not the end of the world. It's okay to be inefficient if you get better results at the end of the day. Uh, economics can only tell us how to be efficient one you know one day or one month at a time. It's a short term enterprise. It's not a long term enterprise, and it doesn't necessarily result in. Uh, in answers that align with our values. So we need to, we need to do democracy. And that's a that's a pretty radical thing, but it also becomes essentially conventional wisdom for a good decade or so. It just isn't uh implemented, I I should say, uh certainly not across uh racially equitable lines. Um and and you know, the idea of, you know, feminism at this time doesn't exist. So, uh, you know, even all the Keynesians in the Kennedy and Johnson administration are, are implementing policies, assuming that women are going to be working in the household, for instance. They're not going to be out in the workplace. Uh, 
So it's it's important not to get this mixed up with like contemporary left wing progressivism, but it's still a much more left wing interpretation of Keynesianism than okay, just spend money in a recession. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And but uh, Galbraith eventually, um, you know, he he was kind of overthrown. I would say it seems like during the neoliberal turn. Um, and, you know, the Keynesians who came after him, even though he lived to like 2006, I believe. Um, That's pretty old. Yeah, he, he was, I think, almost 100 <laughs> years old at that point. Um, yeah. Also very tall. I believe he was six foot seven. Um, so That's was Keynes. That's Keynes. Yeah. Keynes Both yeah. of them, yeah. But, yeah, so, so they eventually, oops, they eventually lost the, the, the struggle as it were, for, you know, the kind of, like, center of the uh, economics, like, um, you know, well, conventional wisdom, I guess you could say, which is a mm-hmm. phrase that yeah. Galbraith invented. A lot of people don't know that. Uh, um, and, you know, this idea that that markets won't solve everything, that that the economy is a government program, that, that thinking more or less vanishes from economics departments and um you know the 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 policy making elite you know by the 90s you have bill clinton saying you know stuff like i forget the quote exactly but like you mean to say that my my re-election depends on the federal reserve and a bunch of fucking bond traders you know it's like like a, a self sort of emasculation for lack of a better word of the state and thinking that you that it is the subject of economic forces rather than their master and so can can you explain to us like how how that happened and and you know how we how we ended up in the in the 80s by Reagan's day back in the 1920s way of thinking about the economy? So in in the 1970s there's this there's this outbreak of inflation there are actually several outbreaks of inflation and uh, a, a series of people on the right uh led by Milton Friedman uh sort of used that as a, as a as a cudgel against Keynesianism and say look all of these these spending programs that you've been doing with your with your Keynesian, you know, Great Society by by Lyndon B. Johnson, with your Vietnam War, with your uh, with your New Deal under Franklin Roosevelt, this stuff has been distorting the economy and building up this inflationary pressure, and now it's all breaking out. And it's there isn't really a consensus today in the economics profession about what causes all of the inflation in the ni- late 1960s and early 1970s. There there is. There's it happens in multiple sort of doses, um, but but Friedman is able to say, look, this means Keynesianism is wrong, and he's able to persuade a lot of people that Keynesianism doesn't have a way to account for inflation in this way, uh, and he's he's sort of enabled in that argument by Paul Samuelson, who has developed this idea, which is called the Phillips curve because it's it's an idea he stole from an Australian economist whose last name was Phillips but but it became popular because Paul Samuelson put it in his textbook and this is the idea that there is a trade-off between inflation and unemployment that if you if you regulate uh, uh, aggregate demand in the economy just so you can choose between a certain amount of, of unemployment or a certain amount of inflation if, if unemployment goes higher inflation goes goes lower if inflation goes higher unemployment goes lower. And so the idea was you could fine tune it and, and hit a certain target. And this was science and it was certain and the smartest people in the world knew it and they put it in their economics textbooks. 
by the 1970s, you start seeing inflation and unemployment rising together. That shouldn't be possible, according to the Phillips curve. There's supposed to be a trade-off. One should go up and the other should go down. Instead, they're going up together. So this means, clearly, all Keynesian uh, economics is wrong, according to Milton Friedman. It, it just means that you know Paul Samuelson was wrong about this, this mathematical thing that he, he put in a textbook, but it, it effectively discredits Keynesianism intellectually within academia. And as a result, uh, when you have sustained sort of unemployment and inflation, you're, you're having problems for real people and for rich people at the same time. So people want to demand change. And essentially under uh, under President Jimmy Carter, uh, Paul Volcker is installed in the Federal Reserve and they just they just break Keynesian entirely. They, they, they just jack up interest rates to enormously oppressive levels, essentially destroy the economy in order to break inflation. Um, and then under Bill Clinton, they start deregulating the financial sector as well. And uh, what you get is a sort of consensus on on the left and the right, uh, you know, not not the sort of like you know, Jacobin left we would talk about today, but the Democratic Party and the uh, and, and the Republican Party. Um, you know, there, there was a left within the Democratic Party prior to this 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 period, and the Democrats and Republicans kind of agree. Okay, we don't do this kind of democratic management of the economy anymore. The economy is something that is up to the economy to decide, and and what we can do with democracy is is this other area called social issues. So we can talk about, we can fight about abortion, and we can fight about the First Amendment and flag burning and and same sex marriage and things like that. But we can't fight about resources and how they're to be distributed because those things operate according to their own logic. And and that's still, frankly, the consensus in Washington uh, it, that has never actually actually left Washington. But it is also the case that in Washington, we believe everybody believes that you have to spend money during a recession. So you end up with this this sort of weird uh, combination of neoliberalism that is, you know, you could just also call it anti-Keynesianism with with a sort of bailout provision for when things get bad enough, you still have to spend money Uh that that becomes the doctrine for both parties, and they fight about this other stuff that they decide is no longer considered uh, economic. Yeah, yeah, and and so here we are, um, <laughs> in back back in the pit. You know, the 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 second second serious you know Great Depression scale recession of my lifetime. Um, so. Zach, what would you say, you know, like for, for people who are who are trying to, you know, learn from the lessons of the past and, you know, t- take in a sort of holistic view of Keynes um, and the, the 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 lessons that he taught, you know, both both in terms of, you know, like things that that worked and, and things that didn't um, for uh you know, societies like the United States today who are who are looking at, you know, the coronavirus pandemic and then probably, you know, a very serious economic problem to be solved, you know, if and when we get a, a, a vaccine or something to, to take care of the virus. Well, you know, I think it's kind of funny that we talk about the coronavirus crisis as these two separate issues. There's there's the public health problem on one side and there's the economic problem on the other. And I don't think Keynes would have seen it that way. He did not want to be remembered as a deficit therapist. Um, He was somebody who wanted to solve social problems. And really his most successful uh, policy initiative in his lifetime was socializing British 
British medicine. I mean, he was the financial architect of the National Health Service, um, you know, which which not only socialized the the health insurance system in Britain, it socialized the entire healthcare system, uh, the provision of actual care. And I think he would look at this problem and say, look, we have a serious public health crisis that we have to deal with. We just have to deal with that first and foremost. What is the best way to make sure that we have, you know, masks and syringes and ventilators and 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 all of that? Deal with deal with the medical emergency that is in front of us. And then after that, we can see where the resources are. You know, it may be the case that in this crisis, we actually do have a shortage of certain resources in ways that we have not in in previous crises. So, uh, you know, right now there's talk, at least, of meat shortages because we can't get enough meat packers to to work because it's a complete you know pit of death and disease in a meat packing house. So. Uh, you know, we may have to figure out like, okay, how much meat are we going to eat as a society? How, you know, how are we going to provision that? Those will be uh, questions that have to be solved democratically. But, you know, broadly, he would want there to be public input into the way that these decisions are made. And to make sure that people understood that it was a choice that society ends up structuring itself this way. And it is a choice that resources are distributed in this way. It is not inevitable or natural that everything flows to the richest people in the country. And that is not necessarily the healthiest thing for the economy. In fact, he would have, he would have believed that it was just morally you know, offensive. So think about the economy, not as this independent, abstract, mathematical beast that you can't understand, but as part of your your way of life. And, and think about it as part of how politics work and something that is not off limits, that, that you are just as good at understanding as, you know, the, the fancy people with PhDs and, and, and your voice matters in those, in those discussions. I think it's really important to understand Keynes's moral philosophy and how it's connected to his economic theory, um, in part because today, you know, this amalgamation you spoke of, of neoliberalism and reactionary Keynesianism, where like the Republicans and even the Democrats are, are happy to, you know, deficit spend for wars or, or happy to give away trillions in liquidity for big corporations, um, is coupled with this kind of moral um, just perversion in, in throwing workers to their deaths so that the stock market can keep going and so forth. And, and I think it all goes back to this, you know, ideological divide between Hayek and Keynes about what freedom really is and how for, for Keynes, um, you know, freedom is bound up with that larger vision of uh, the social and the economic going together. And for Hayek, they're, they're, they're separate. And I think this could, maybe you could speak to this. This could explain a lot about why certain kind of reactionary protesters are saying, wearing a mask is tyranny and freedom is going back to work and kill myself and others, you know, so, so maybe you could speak to these two divergent uh, conceptions of human freedom and how that's connected. Uh, to be perfectly frank, I have a hard time uh, deciphering what the vision of freedom is that says, like, I, I can't wear a mask. It's just really weird to me. But the, 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 the difference between Hayek and Keynes, it's important to understand that they come out of the very similar imperial traditions and their conceptions of freedom they're they both think of themselves as liberals they they love the idea of liberalism they they love the enlightenment they love all this talk about individual liberty and stuff they would probably both have been horrified by a lot of the left talking about you know moving beyond liberalism today uh, but hayek's understanding is intimately bound up with uh, an exclusive understanding of, uh, of of an aristocracy. Keynes also likes 
the aristocracy. He recognizes that Bloomsbury has a somewhat aristocratic lifestyle, that, that if you're going around drinking champagne and having your portrait done by a post-impressionist painters, this is not something that people who work in coal mines can do all the time. Um, but Keynes thinks that should be opened up to everybody. He says, because we don't have economic scarcity, uh, we can all participate in this life. We can, we can, we can all drink champagne and have our you know, portrait taken while we're getting haircuts by Virginia Woolf, and uh, and and that will be great. Hayek does not see it that way. He says, "Look, scarcity is is the is the thing that forces us to make a choice. If if you do not have scarcity, then." How will you know whether one thing is better than another? How will you be able to create a culture that is passed down from generation to generation? And look, it's it's a much more elite and exclusive philosophy, but it's not totally crazy. You know, I used to be a professional musician, and I think one of the one of the problems for uh, for musicians is not just that music is free, but that it's abundant right now. You know, if, if it used to be, if you wanted to get a record, you had to go to a record store and choose between these different things, and it was. You know, you were also bound by what they happen to have in the store. Now you just okay. I can listen to absolutely anything on Spotify. What what is it that I want to choose? Why would I pick one thing over another? Uh, you know, it's it it is there. There is something to what Hayek is saying about the necessity that is forced by scarcity to uh, to choose and, and establish values and create create a culture. Um, I I don't think he's he's totally out of left field there. But you know, when you're talking about about people getting access to healthcare and things like that. I, I, I just don't find it quite as compelling. Um, so these, these different visions are, are really visions about, about exclusivity. Can, can we all be participants in the same aristocratic milieu or not? And if we can't, then, then Hayek's vision of freedom says, look, we have to do everything we can to ensure that there is an aristocratic upper class that is distinct from other people, not just that it exists, but it is distinct. So you, you need to impose inequality intentionally in society. Otherwise you will not have a way of, of doing all the finer things that Keynes cares so much about. Uh, for Keynes, he just says, no, that's just silly. Let's build community theaters in absolutely every county in England. And let's, let's have playwrights from every county and actors from every county. And that, that will be beautiful and wonderful. Um, they're totally different totally different understandings, but they come from, they come from a very similar tradition. And so the idea that one of these things is the correct version of liberalism and the other one is a perversion of liberalism, I think is, 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 it's actually important to point out these are both, these are competing visions for what liberalism is. And there is a way to do liberalism, I think, that is not just uh, the Hayekian version that, that ended up triumphing in the second half of the 20th century. Yeah, you could have a liberal socialism, you might call it, you know. Um, Keynes, Keynes called it that. That's right. <laughs> which is weird. I mean, we probably, I don't know if we have time to get into this, but did you read the 80-page uh, treatise that Keynes wrote on Burke? Yes, because I did. Because <laughs> I was, I'm fascinated, you know, about this. Uh, you know, I was, I was not surprised to see Rousseau as an influence, but this idea that he unified Burke and Rousseau. Um, maybe you could speak to that a little bit, because that was a, a fascinating and unexpected thing to read. Well, so Keynes is terrified of social upheaval. He sees war as this terrible disaster. He's got the the 1914 collapse. Um, just seems it, it's it's the worst thing he can imagine. Um, but he he does 
come to believe in these these ideals about equality uh, that that he sees as as being you know coming coming essentially out of Rousseau, radical ideas about equality. And he thinks the reason that we've had a laissez-faire economy, what he calls a laissez-faire economy over the, the, the era of the high gold standard from the late 19th century, early 20th century, is because it just so happened that having the government generally get out of the way uh, was, was something that would encourage uh, general prosperity and would make people who were committed to Rousseau's moral vision be okay with the same set of policies that that Burkeans who just didn't like the government doing anything anyway, um, they they could come to come to a set of agreements on these policies. But if if those policies didn't work, then these two sets of of thinkers were going to these two sets of people were not going to get along anymore. And Burke fundamentally, according to to Keynes, is concerned about avoiding revolution. He's a, he's concerned with social stability. And, and Keynes cares about that very much. And he says, look, if you rich people actually care about social stability, what you should do is socialize your medicine. <laughs> you, should, you should do all of these things that keep the poor from revolting because they're so mad at you. And, and this, this way, you know, with these new sets of policies, we can harmonize the egalitarian principles and the anti-revolutionary uh, bent of, 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 of Burke. Um, and he, he, he loves Burke. I mean, he really genuinely loves him. Uh, also genuinely loves Rousseau. And by the end of his life, he, he thinks that he's doing a Burkean project. We're going to keep the people from revolting by, you know, giving them free health care. And he also thinks we're going to we're going to like make high art available to everybody by giving them free health care, because that way they don't have to worry about, you know, health insurance. They can they can just go off and make art and that'll be good for society in general. Uh, so he's he's operating in all of these different conservative and and radical traditions at the same time, and he takes all of them very seriously. So it's not the case that you can just say, okay, Keynes was a socialist, Keynes was a lefty, or Keynes was a conservative. He's doing all of these things at once, and he does not fit into the categories, I think, that we, we typically think about when we talk about left and right today, you know, he would probably have been horrified by Bernie Sanders' rhetoric in the in the 2020 campaign talking about a revolution, but he probably would have loved Bernie Sanders' uh, policy program. So, uh, and, and he would have he would have found it's hard for me to say like what he you know who he would have supported in the 2020 primary. What, <laughs> what do you think, Zach? Sense. Would Keynes be an MMT job guarantee guy? Come on, <laughs> you know. It, He's he wouldn't get into the well he would get into these fights he was always in, involved in fights uh, so but I I don't know where he would come down on any, any of these particular you know lefty you know factional disputes but he he would have insisted on on making sure that we thought about the economy as an extension of of democracy and and not and not as as this independent thing that wasn't uh, uh, you know that, that that operated according to its own sort of wonk logic yeah. Yeah, I mean, if if you uh, if you watch uh, uh, Ken Galbraith's series, The Age of Uncertainty, it was like a BBC program, I think. Um, it's, wow, it's all on YouTube. Um, he des- he describes the the French Revolution in what you might you 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 could describe it in in Keynesian terms as basically like the elite was too greedy and stupid to know what their own best interest was. And so when when uh, reform from above became impossible, revolution from below became inevitable. And, uh, you know, he says every revolution is the kicking in of a rotten door. And it seems like if you see that the elite is patently too stupid and greedy to, um, you know, listen to the wise 
uh, heads who are counseling moderation, that is socialized medicine or whatever, um, then you've got to throw in with the other side who is saying like, well, let's, you know, let's reform this system like totally to, you know, I mean, if not joining the sort of revolutionary crowd to say like, well, we just, we, we got to get rid of this elite and we got, we got to restructure things from, from top to bottom. And and Galbraith, I think gets that, uh, gets that worldview and that, that sort of, uh, that, that rubric for understanding reality from Keynes directly. And, and I think that's why he is, I think the most philosophical of Keynes's, uh, uh, intellectual descendants, even, even though, you know, there, there are, Certainly, things that Galbraith endorsed as a policymaker that you know Keynes probably would have uh, taken issue with. Um, you know, life just gets complicated and goes in directions. It's hard to it's hard to understand from from 1946, right? Um, but uh, but fundamentally, these are two people who are thinking about the economy as a political issue. Economics is fundamentally political. Whether you're trying to fend off revolution or whether you're trying to prevent war, it is understood that economic policy is a central thing to how you deal with the biggest questions of the day. It's not this thing that operates according to its own logic that you can just leave alone and will work out on its own. If you don't manage the economy the right way, you end up with these terrible, terrible things. And I think climate change is one of those things that we would mm. we would want to talk about today, right? I mean... If you if you just talk about restarting the economic engine after coronavirus is over, uh, well, what kind of economic engine are you starting? <laughs> are you starting yeah. one that leads us right. to mass right. catastrophe? I mean, that that would not be good. Keynes would be Keynes would want us to think about that and to understand that the economy is part of these our, our values and and the things that we care about uh, are are not independent of economic policy. Yeah, and he thought he thought that two thirds of overall investments would be best by the government in order to have, I mean, what sounds a lot like democratic socialism, in order to have that vision of 15-hour work weeks that he describes in that 1930 piece on economic possibilities. Is that something he settled on in a kind of a certain way because of the failures of markets that aren't kind of coordinated by the state? He got to the two-thirds number uh, in the 1940s, so when he was he was working on British war finance and managing the British war economy uh, when they were managing much more than two thirds of the British economy. Um, And so he he thought, you know, we could, we could roll it back from, from where we are. There were probably somewhere around 80, 85% in Britain at that time. Uh, So he said, yeah, we don't, we don't need to go this far. Uh, We can, we can, we can let off the reins a little bit, but he just saw that, you know, governments for long periods of time in his life just ran the whole show and all of the things that people said were going to be terrible about protectionism and ending free trade and stuff that that you know like there were some bad things that happened as a result of that but they had full employment in britain in world war one and world war two so it wasn't the case that that they had these economic economic disasters what they had was a terrible war <laughs> and, and the war was the problem um so he so he said okay well why if, if we have this capacity and we know that we're going to do this stuff, like why would we just use this for military purposes? And, yeah. and what, what is he, he wanted to maximize individual freedom because he comes from this liberal tradition. So he said, well, I think about two thirds 
maybe is where is where it'll right. be where we can we can make sure that there's we're at full employment and nobody who there's no involuntary unemployment anymore. But he would have right. cared more about whether there was involuntary unemployment than about like whether it was sixty six percent or sixty two or fifty eight or, or whatever. Yeah. Well, um, that's all the questions I got. We should probably let you go, Zach. I imagine getting a bit late. Um, the book is called The Price of Peace. We'll link it in the description. Uh, thanks for coming on the, the program. Thanks for having me, guys. It was really a delight for me. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you next time. Before I sign off here, uh, just a quick reminder that we've got a Patreon for the podcast, patreon.com slash leftanchor. You can uh, subscribe to get uh, more episodes and um, support the show. We'd much appreciate it. Uh, but if not, no worries. In any case, thanks for listening.